Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job the Stamp podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Alishba Imran is a 17-year-old researcher in machine learning and blockchain development, having worked with organizations such as IBM, Hanson Robotics, TD Bank, Ethereum, just to name a few. She's an activator and innovator at the Knowledge Society and co-founder of Vaults, building a machine learning software to accelerate energy storage testing for R&D and production from months to days. They are working with companies that include manufacturers such as subsidiaries of Tesla and more. Alishba is using three-dimensional printers to create prosthetics she wants to sell for no more than $500. The market range is between $5,000 and $100,000. She is a member of the Masasan Foundation that was started by Masayoshi-san, the founder, chairman, and CEO of SoftBank Group Corporations. She recently participated at NeurIPS, one of the largest ML and computational neuroscience conferences, and TEDx University of Waterloo, about her work in machine intelligence. Alishba is also a Western Youth Innovation Award finalist given to five teens across Canada that are using technology to make a social impact. In today's episode, we're going to discover how she achieves that, and let's jump jump right into it. Hello, Alishba. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that you're here. And to start this episode, you know, sometimes in relationship talks, they ask the question, how did you guys meet? And we're going to translate that concept to the world of science. And I'm interested to ask you about your relationship in that sense with the STEM fields. So do you remember your first encounter with the wonders of science? For me, uh, like from a very young age, I was always very interested in problem solving. And that's initially how I got interested in learning more about, you know, technology. And it kind of just seemed like a, and like technology to me was a way to break apart complex problems, but then also, you know, come up with ways that we could solve these problems. So I remember from when I was, I think I was around 13 or 14. I was very interested in robotics. So that was my initial kind of exposure to the field of STEM. I joined like the robotics team at my school and I got really interested in, cause you know, putting apart these these robotic parts and almost like creating something that would help solve a problem. Um, and through that I got, you know, exposure to like a little bit of programming and 
learned about, you know, a field of machine learning called computer vision that we were using as part of our, our as part of these robots. And so that was like, I'd say one of my very initial exposures to specifically STEM. But I'd say from a very young age, I was exposed to a lot of different problems, especially I got to travel to a lot of developing countries from a young age and, you know, India, Pakistan, got to see a lot of these emerging problems, like not having access to healthcare infrastructure or, you know, financial services. And through that, I, I think I was always just very motivated and passionate to make, you know, a change or, or try to solve or tackle one of these problems in any way that I could. It's really inspirational to hear how you use the methodology of creative problem solving and implemented that into the world of robotics, how you explain that, okay, you take things apart, you analyze them, and then you've got the creative thinking, and then implement a more narrow approach to create a system, essentially. And you've mentioned that you've visited some developing countries like India and Pakistan. Now, in those places, do you remember a specific moment or an example that was sort of a, not a culture, but a more infrastructural shock to you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, one of the problems like that I was also working on recently um, is actually the problem of counterfeit medication. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this problem, but it's it's a huge problem within developing countries and certain rural areas where almost like 30 to 40% of their medication can be counterfeit. And the main reason is because there's no way today to authenticate like where these medications are coming from, how they're being distributed, you know, who's the manufacturer. And it comes down to not having, you know, any sort of transparency in supply chain, no tracking uh, within these systems. So at this time, I was also learning a lot about blockchain. And, and through that, I realized you can actually apply blockchain to this problem in a way where it can allow you to track these medications and uh, create more transparency in these supply chain systems for, you know, counterfeit industry. It's so great that you went into this gray zone area of counterfeit medication and you wanted to track it down because um, to us, with all the approvals that you need either in the US or in Europe or in Canada, it's very apparent and logical that you've got to have approvals and the ingredient list, but it seems like those medications represent a black box and uh, people and minorities or who are not in so good financial situations uh, pay the money for that just to receive the medicine. But of course, they don't necessarily look at the specific um, details of the medication. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually got exposed to that problem um, while I was on a trip to India. And I remember speaking to someone who was, you know, telling me a story about how one of their son actually fell really ill. And so she wanted to get medication, but the store was actually really far away from where she lived because this was a very rural part of the country. And she there was no way for her to actually go there. And so she just went to the closest store she could find. And she almost even knew that the medication was not real, but there's almost like this stigma that like, if you take any sort of medication, like it's probably better than doing nothing, um, which is definitely not the case. So, you know, after realizing that I was very inspired to just go deeper into the problem. And that's how I got, you know, started on working on this platform. And I uh, also gotten a lot of support from companies like IBM that have been working on similar you know, use cases in the space that helped me kind of build this use case out. So that was, I'd say, one of the initial exposures uh, that, you know, kind of to your question. 
I see. Yes, there is definitely a stark contrast and a differentiation between nothing or something for people who are in desperate need of that medication, especially in the case of a mother who wants to uh, protect and support their child in that way. It's been really inspirational to hear your first exposure or your first encounter with the wonders of science. We've got that initial moment. But what or who inspired you to stick with the STEM fields in the long run? You mentioned IBM and you are involved in many different aspects, but what made you persevere essentially? I, I think a lot of it was like mentors um, in the field that you know I was talking to. And I think that just motivated me a lot to just like keep going. Um, I also think just like having a motivation and like an internal drive, because I think it's easy to, to have like an external drive and, you know, care about what people think or want like external results. But I think if you just think about like, why are you internally doing this and why are you really motivated? Like for me, that was a huge thing that just kept me going. So as an example, when, you know, I got to travel to different developing countries and rural areas in Pakistan and India, and I got to really see people firsthand experience you know, poverty, experience help not having access to financial services, like having poor healthcare infrastructure. I think a lot of that, those experiences and those people, uh, like really motivated me to keep going initially and just build that motivation and internal drive. And then I think what kept me going, like I was saying, was really the mentors and the people that supported me. So uh, I was part of this human accelerator program where they were exposing us to a lot of different technologies and mindsets that we needed to really make an impact. And I think the community that I found there, like the people, uh, the program directors were really helpful in terms of be, just like being invested in your growth um, and providing you feedback to just continuously like improve and, and better yourself. You've made the clear distinction between internal and external drive because external motivation, if it comes from other people praising you or working to be accepted, even in the scientific world, can be futile and be seen as a depleting source. But those people, those appreciation notes are just, you know, changing. They are variables in the equation of pursuing research in the STEM fields. But it's you have so much more power over your thought pattern, and that could be as a constant or the mentors you've mentioned before who can offer that stability in your growth. On the podcast, one of the first milestones we have is research, which uh, truly defines um, the lives of many of the listeners and could provide inspiration for them how you are uh, moving towards you know, your goal in the STEM fields. Let's date back a little bit because you've been building a robotic hand that can see for itself. So going in with a very general science fair question, where did the idea derive from to build this? Yeah, it's actually, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge problem. Um, and I, I initially got, you know, just interested in the problem um, because I was just diving really deep into the healthcare industry and trying to understand better, uh, you know, about prosthetics. And I just met a lot of people and got to talk to people that, you know, mentioned that they could not even afford a prosthetic arm at, at first. And after even they could, you know, afford it, or they had access to a prosthetic arm, there usually wasn't like enough healthcare insurance to actually cover it. 
And so what I realized is like, there's a lot of multifaceted kind of problems within prosthetics. Um, and I talked to, you know, researchers, there's lots of interesting research if anyone's interested. Um, at University of Alberta, they have a bionics lab where they're doing some really interesting work with prosthetics and kind of what the future could look like. So what I realized is like, there's a few problems. So number one, the problem is just like, you know, access to prosthetics. Like currently there's a huge shortage of prosthetics. I think nearly like 30 million prosthetics, like the WHO had said, um, there's a shortage within, you know, the entire world. Um, and then within that shortage, you know, they're just very expensive. So they can be upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars at times. And most people generally can't afford that. So how do we actually reduce the cost? How do we increase the access? And then the last problem I'd say is more around the actual arm. And there's a huge barrier to usability today. So the actual manipulation of the arm usually is done manually. So a user has to manually control what objects they wanna pick or uh, how they want to actually interact with objects in their environment. And so I wanted to figure out a way to essentially automate that using like muscle signal signals combined with different deep learning techniques that I've developed um, to automate the process of actually grasping different objects. And then I've 3D printed an entire arm. So I've designed kind of this test use case, which can reduce the cost down from uh, 100,000 to around just $200. And so that's been kind of the goal of the project. Um, and yeah, like uh, like upcoming, I'm hoping to, we're talking to University of San Jose um, and they're really interested in supporting it. So hopefully we'll actually test out the arms in some of their rehabilitation centers. Well, I'm really cheering you on that it will evolve because I think that it touches on such a crucial problem that can be uh, a stumbling block for many of the people, not just from an economic perspective, but also everyday life using prosthetics. I'm not sure if any of the listeners is in the world of sports, but there's this Paris snowboarder, Amy Purdy. She said, because the prosthetics is mechanical, it's um, outside your body. It's very hard to control all those crazy motions she has to do while competing. As you've touched on some of the techniques currently available, could you just give an overview of what some of the options are on the market and what are those distinct features you bring to the table that make your solution novel and more accessible, more innovative? There's there's different tiers of prosthetics. Um, and so uh, like one of the tiers is like a very uh, simple prosthetic arm. So it's essentially like a... Um, like a, it's almost like a strap. And so the person will have a prosthetic arm attached to like a, a strap and they have to essentially use their other arm if they have another arm to actually control the movements. So that's like very fully manual. But the thing is those ones tend to cost less. So they cost, I believe like 2000 to $10,000, which in my opinion is, is still, you know, a lot. Um, and then there's like a second tier, which is like a hook prosthetic. Um, so that prosthetic doesn't really contain like a like a hand. It's just like a hook prosthetic, um, but it's a little bit more automated in terms of like the actual hand. You don't have to necessarily control it fully manually. Um, and then there's like a third tier, and I'm just I'm really briefly summarizing it. There's obviously a lot more components to this. Um, the third tier is uh, controlled by like muscle signals. So that's more of like a fully automated arm. 
but those ones are the ones that are very high end and they can usually cost like a hundred thousand dollars um so those are those that's kind of the current options in the market um and like you said one of the biggest problems is actually manipulation and how many degrees of freedom you actually have to move um and a lot of that just has to do with like technical barriers um in terms of the joints that the prosthetic arm actually has. Um, so for example, like some prosthetics don't have like a wrist joint. So you can't actually, you can't actually rotate your wrist like a, like a human would be able to do um, like with their, with their hand. Um, so that's like one of the things that makes it, you know, like a barrier uh, in terms of like the actual movements. So I'd say this is a technology that hasn't really been innovated in too much. Um, so there are a few approaches, like I mentioned, uh, University of Alberta has some really interesting research where they're combining kind of cameras and smart sensors to figure out ways that they can kind of automate the detection of objects, um, detection of what's around the environment of a user so that they can better predict how the user will actually use the arm. Um, they've also designed like novel kind of arms that are easier to use and a lot cheaper. Um, and so what I'd say is like my research is kind of a branch off of that. It's not exactly what they're doing, but it's very similar. So it's using um, different deep learning techniques. So it's essentially a computer, it's, it's similar to a computer vision algorithm, something called uh, GGCNN. Um, and essentially it's able to detect objects in real time and then figure out how like a grasping position on the the object and then sends a, a command to the arm to actually get the object and manipulate it. Um, so that part is like fully automated. Um, so I'm looking at fully automating the entire motion. Usually the part that's automated is just the object detection, not the entire motion. So that's one aspect of it that I think is fairly unique. Um, and then I'd say just like the design of the arm, the fact that it's a lot cheaper makes it a lot more accessible. Um, and the goal would be to maybe, you know, potentially open source this so that people around the world can easily get access to it, almost like a kit that they can, that they can purchase. It's connected to the research that is being done at the University of Alberta with the detection of objects in your environment. But now you're saying that, okay, you've solidified the technique and improved the design, but the next step would be to actually create this do-it-yourself at home kit for people using prosthetics yeah so there's there's lots of different like business models i guess you could say um like that's just one example that i mentioned so like another example could be like open sourcing all of the designs and everything like that so people can you know use it more of like a research thing and they can build on the research um or the other thing is to actually you know commercialize it maybe make it like a kit um, with parts that are easily, you know, put together. Um, cause that's one of the benefits. If you have a 3d printed arm, like it's not too difficult to put it together. Like even when I was building my arm, like 3d printed it and it was fairly easy and didn't take too long to actually put it together. Um, and I, and so I think that could also help kind of remove the barrier of usability for a lot of users. Um, and then, you know, also increase access. If you can easily access these kits that are a lot cheaper. So I'm, we're still kind of uh, working with a few people. We're still trying to figure out exactly what business model would make the most sense, but I'd love to, you know, hear any ideas that other people might have on this as well. 
Absolutely. And I really like the idea that it's accessible. And when a person receives it, that person is also able to understand how it works. You also increase knowledge in this way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is like another very interesting thing. It's like most, you know, prosthetic users don't really fully grasp or understand exactly how the arm works. Unless, you know, you've been using it for a very long time. Um, there is a lot of barrier, especially to usability. Like usually patients will have to train for at least three months to actually even under like get used to using the arm. Um, and like you said, you know, if you're doing like sports or athletics, or you're using it for something more complex, then your movement is actually very constrained um, based on your the rest of your body because you almost have to use the rest of your body to do these actions. And I think it correlates to the fact that these types of gray zones in the world of prosthetics can present unmet needs. Um, and that could also mean a need of understanding. And if they are present, they might lead to confusion. And I think you would just increase trust exponentially with this kit. So I'm really cheering you on to, you know, finding and tracking down the best business model to work with and uh, just to see it develop in the future, because I think it's going to be revolutionary. We're going to spread the good news and instill hope in, in the lives of prosthetic users. Yeah, thank you. This corona situation must have presented very, or to some degree, difficult challenges in your life. How has this current pandemic situation affected your research workflow? Or did you focus on a more specific topic in your research to, to accelerate its growth? So for me, I think, like, obviously, everyone has been differently affected by kind of the situation and COVID. But for me... I think it actually just gave me a lot more like freedom and structure in terms of like how I want to spend my time. Um, and that part of it I liked because I think I got to almost decide like what I want to focus on and what I want to learn about. So throughout the, you know, throughout like this entire thing happening and kind of rolling out for me, I started to go really deep into robotics and learning more about kind of the intersection of interesting research fields like reinforcement learning imitation learning, uh, convolutional neural networks kind of combined with research in robotics. So for me, that was really interesting because I think at least in today's day and age, like if you have access to a laptop and internet, like it's not that hard to learn everything. Like I think most of the knowledge that I've gotten about even my prosthetic arm project was through the internet. And, you know, obviously talking to people and, and users helps a lot, but I do think you can learn a lot from the internet if you know how to use it really well. Um, so that's like one aspect of, you know, just this entire situation that I think I enjoyed and I, I liked. Um, and then I also just think being able to adapt, like I think we all kind of, that's just an essential skill that we all need to develop and, and learn. Um, and so I think being in the situation and having to directly adapt was like another thing that was really good for me was like, to not necessarily always plan out every little thing, but be open to, you know, having ambiguity and just like going with the flow sometimes. That's really good because it can be quite controversial how people are processing this pandemic situation emotionally and time management wise. But 
what you are saying is that this type of unstructured environment allowed for self-growth and discipline and perhaps mm -hmm. this freedom just exposes parts um, in your daily life that you should improve on and not having a perfect Google calendar allowing for that element of surprise and I think we should all <laughs> embrace that because in research it's not gonna be the way you imagined it at first when you set your hypotheses. Yeah, and I think like just globally, like if we look at like economic systems, like we look at supply chain, like everyone's had to adapt. Like if you think about like glo global trade and supply chain, there were countries that, you know, relied significantly on China and parts of China to manufacture their products. But when all those factories shut down, like there was, there was a huge shortage around the world. And so I think like as a byproduct, a lot of things will change in terms of just being more proactive. Um, when it comes to you know supply chain and trade, like maybe we'll just be more distributed, we'll have less of a central, central system when it comes to like collaboration globally and stuff like that. So I do think there will be change and a lot of people have had to obviously adapt to all of these changes. Like, all the way from our economy, government, um, even schools. Like I think school is one of the biggest examples. Like with all the online learning going on, I think it's definitely going to set like a very interesting future where we might just have a component of full online learning throughout school um, because that is really where our future is heading. So I think it was almost like a forcing function for us to adapt to that and like build up part of our school system. Exactly. You know, in kindergarten, if someone crashes your Lego castle or that building you've been meticulously building for a while, you're so frustrated and angry at the person or that external factor. But then um, there comes a time to rethink it and restructure and start from the foundations. And just as you said, that type of ambiguity can actually help to think perhaps locally for businesses or finding new manufacturers. And you've mentioned blockchain previously. So I think that it's an essential and uh, a very apparent part of your life. Blockchain is basically this transparent public ledger that people can use and, and makes ownership more clear. What I as an outsider understand from this, but I guess it's more complex. So could you Tell us about your story with the whole world of blockchain development and how and why you got into it. As to the how and the why, I'd say for me, like I just like blockchain was something that I've obviously heard of, but for me, like I never really understood it. <laughs> and like, I think that's probably the case with a lot of people. Like when I thought about blockchain, like I had only really heard about like Bitcoin and like cryptocurrency. So for me, it was more of just like, I was very interested to learn about ways we could apply this technology outside of cryptocurrency. And I think there are obviously very interesting use cases in crypto and um, lots of lots of companies that are doing work in that space. But I also wanted to see, can we actually use just this fundamental idea of this technology and apply it to different problems? So that was what really initially got me interested and just kind of wanting to understand the infrastructure and how exactly the transactions within the technology worked. So what I like before I get any further, like I'll just kind of quickly give a brief overview of what the technology is. Um, 
I think there's different components to it. So the best way that I like to explain it is the goal of the technology is to essentially create more transparency and put um, like the data and the usage in your hands instead of like a central authority. So if you think about like the government, you think about banks, there's usually a single authority uh, that you have to go through to do everything. So if you think about banking today, like if I wanted to send over money to you, it would have to go through the bank and the bank would get a certain fee before it can actually reach you. Um, and so the whole idea of the technology is to remove any sort of third party that is a part of these transactions. And from a business standpoint, like that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you might be thinking like, why would you want to just like remove banks or remove government? The main reason is, is actually just like privacy. Um, and there's a lot of different methods that you can get privacy in blockchain. And this is something that is still being developed, but a lot of it is through like encryption and decryption methods where it's like, you'll have a public key. I'll have a private key and using those, we can like send each other specific data that'll be encrypted and I can only decrypt it. So nobody else. Um, so that's kind of the goal is to do direct peer to peer transactions. Um, and they have a whole kind of infrastructure like hashes and a whole ledger, like you said, which is what all of that kind of happens on. So I'd say that's like the first kind of goal. Um, and so within that, like it's really good for tracking, which is why I applied it to supply chain for the counterfeit medication problem, because everything within every transaction within the ledger or the system gets locked in. So it gets like, uh, like a, every time a transaction happens, a new record is created for it. So it's very easy to do the tracking and being able to actually trace back um, the different things. So I'd say like at a high level, that is like the system and kind of the way it operates and some of the goals for blockchain. I see. So that's how it all comes together. You got familiar with the technique and the theory. You've got it nailed down. And then you thought, okay, how can I apply that received knowledge to real life situations such as the counterfeit medication? And that's how with the use of blockchain, just as you expanded on, track down the footprint, which is very clear and obvious if you are into blockchain development. Um, so this company's footprint, and that's how you got to work with IBM. And I guess being involved in the Knowledge Society also helped you in that pursuit? Definitely, yeah. They, like the program, um, it, like I mentioned, exposes you to a lot of different technologies. So when I was learning about all of these technologies, like I, like I think they, they have a very good, like a structure for how you can go about learning. Um, and I think that's like one thing that you're not really taught in life is like the skill to actually learn things. Um, if you think about school, like you're always given the information and it's just like, okay, let's just memorize this information and then let's just output that information onto your like test or assessment. But I think in real life, like you actually have access to so much information and it's really what comes down to it is like your ability to figure things out and like how can you actually learn. So I think they're really good at teaching that. And I know it sounds like a very like absurd thing to teach, but for me, like that was life-changing because now it's like, if I want to learn about a new technology, if I want to learn about like quantum computing, for example, like I know where exactly I would start and I know how 
I would go about learning that. So you've got the plan in mind, not necessarily the detailed plan, but the strategy, how to go about it like in a fight. You know your strong points and the weak points and the data you have to use to get from A to B. A lot of it is just like frameworks, right? It's like, how many frameworks do you have? And like, I, I love frameworks. I think frameworks are like a really good way to organize information and you can almost even like create your own frameworks using like first principles and you know being able to break things down so I think if you have like really good mental models and really good frameworks that you can just rely on I think it becomes easy to like learn about new things no matter like how complex they might seem um, and that was like the scenario when you know I was reading through research papers and I wasn't really sure like how to read research papers um, because, you know, there's so much technical knowledge and so much stuff you almost have to have as a prerequisite before you can do that. But I think once you figure out like a strategy or even just like how to learn, it becomes a lot easier. So now it's like if I want to read a paper, like I can do it like way faster than I used to be able to do like a few years ago. When you are presented with that finely detailed and highly complex technical knowledge. It seems like you are learning a new language that you have to get accustomed to, to adapt to and kind of be immersed in that environment. If perhaps someone is listening to this podcast who wants to understand these research papers, but doesn't have a clue how to go about them, because I think we've all been there. What would you suggest to that person? Uh, where should he or she start? How do you go about it if it seems very technical to you at first? I think initially when you're reading research papers, I think as you read like more and more papers, first of all, you realize a lot of them have a lot of missing information or information that they've like almost covered up to make the results like seem better than they actually are. So what I would recommend, like when I would, if I'm first reading research papers is like, just read like the abstract and then read like the conclusion or the results. Um, and that's how I initially started, just very high level. If I'm learning about a topic, read the abstract, because I think you can get a lot of the information there and then read the conclusion. Um, because I think a lot of like almost like 50% of the information that you'll likely need is in there. And you only really need like the detailed of the approach if you want to maybe replicate the approach or you're trying to figure out if it actually makes sense to do. Um, and so if that's the case, like if you want to read the rest of the paper and go into the technical things, um, one thing that helped me a lot was like looking at papers that that paper references. So you usually find like papers will reference or build on top of research that somebody else has already done. Um, and I think starting from, from there, and almost working your way up helps a lot because then you have like the knowledge to build up to that to that experiment or that that uh, like approach that they've tried. So that's like one thing that helped me a lot was just digging really deep and understanding uh, the key concepts before I go into it. So if you you know see a technical term that you don't know, like just Google it and just try to see kind of where that leads you until you start to piece these things together. That's good. So you have to form a frame within a framework. You know, it can be brought into correlation with uh, a startup called Blinkist. I don't know, have you heard about it before? If you want to work at the company, it's harder to get into than Harvard. They are a very fast growing startup and they basically put bestsellers into seven minute condensed versions. So I think you can 
kind of do the same with research papers if you want to get the gist of it and just uh, write or jot down a few thoughts that really stood out to you and then perhaps those things will appear again or just the highlighted keywords that you googled for example yeah exactly i think like you can oftentimes summarize it and i think the best way to learn is to like teach other people so one thing i like to do is like write articles after i, I read a paper um just so i actually can figure out what exactly i took away maybe if you didn't actually understand it then now you know and you can go back and kind of read it in more detail so I think when you're explaining to other people, you almost get into that mindset of understanding exactly what you're saying before you say it to another person. And that can help a lot when you're learning like a very complex or very technical topic. Yes, I really like this. It's like when you're writing a diary, you process your thoughts and then a few days or years you go back into that oh was I really thinking that but um, it just really shows your growth process you are also involved in artificial intelligence and AI is such a big hit we see why with all the wide range applications mm -hmm. in the field but what do you think like how should we ensure that research moves into the right direction and how do you personally envision the future of ai in the upcoming years or decades so there's lots of different areas where there's like currently research being done one of the biggest barriers i'd say right now within the re like within just like ai or machine learning uh is like the data so if you want to use an algorithm today, I don't think it's actually hard to implement an algorithm because we have, you know, packages like PyTorch and uh, like TensorFlow and Keras where it's very easy to actually implement an algorithm off of the shelf. But I'd say one of the hardest things is actually the data, like to, to get an accurate result or get a prediction that would actually be useful, you need a lot of data. Um, and that's one of the biggest barriers in terms of being able to scale these systems where you want to make a prediction, but maybe you just don't have enough data. Um, and this is something that I've been learning a lot about because I'm working on uh, a product right now for a few manufacturers and energy storage where we're using machine learning to accelerate the testing process for their products. So we use just a fraction of their testing data and we try to predict what the rest of it will be. Um, but it becomes really difficult if we don't have access to a lot of the existing data that they have. So I'd say that's one of the areas where we definitely need more kind of predictions. The other interesting area that's being developed is um, like unsupervised learning. Um, and the idea of unsupervised learning is like today, uh, if you want to make a prediction, you almost need to know exactly what you're looking for. And you need to like label your data set to make the correct prediction. But the idea with like supervised learning is that you almost let the machine do the work for you. So the machine looks through the data and figures out what prediction would actually be valuable and what prediction is possible with the data that you have. So I think that that, that is like a very interesting aspect. Um, yeah, like I, I can go on and on, but there's there's lots of like, if, if anyone's interested, I'll just name a few things and you can look more into it. Like, I think you should look into GPT-3 um, it's just created by a company called OpenAI. They're doing a lot of like interesting language models. So being able to generate language, which has been a very complex task that machines can't do. And then I, I also really like reinforcement learning. I think it has a lot of promise. 
So I would also look into that if you're interested. It's very interesting to hear you expand on all of those emerging technologies and how you are involved in shaping the future of AI and research and development and at Waltz. So that's the mission and the goal of Waltz you are invested in to use machine learning to accelerate that energy storage. Yeah, and energy storage is a huge problem. Like if you think about renewables, like like the cost of renewables has significantly gone down. But one of the reasons why we haven't actually implemented renewables is because we don't have enough energy storage because the sun is shining at some times and then it's not shining other times. So you need a reliable energy storage system. And today, like usually batteries are used, but we significant we need to almost like 20x our energy storage capacity in the next 10 years to be able to sustain all the renewables that we want to use. So I think like that is a huge fundamental problem that not a lot of people are currently focusing in on. So the goal with this project is to hopefully like, you know, quicken up the process of testing these devices so that we can come up with kind of new innovations in energy storage. You know, it's so funny that you're bringing this topic up because we are recording this interview at this time because I've had an organic chemistry lecture full day and my professor was just stressing out the fact that if you want to go into an organic chemistry, make sure to uh, research lithium or the future of batteries yeah. because it has a lot of untapped potential. Batteries, like I, I genuinely, I agree with that. I think like lithium batteries, like that's probably where the most innovations have been done. But I think like you can look into solid state batteries. I think solid state batteries have potential. Uh, flow batteries are like another type of batteries that have a lot of potential. So there's definitely like pockets that are starting to evolve, but we still need, um, we still need an innovation. I'd say it's a material science problem where we need so chemistry, right? We need new materials where we can basically increase the like energy density of these devices. Yes, smaller, more effective, more accessible. Just got to have those qualities laid down. You have a very multifaceted approach in this industry and you are involved in in many aspects uh, from blockchain development through machine learning to convolutional neural networks and prosthetics, a lot of things. But what have been some of the takeaways so far as a young female in the industry, which is, you know, not so common? So what's been your experience like so far? I think like uh, for me, like one of the biggest takeaways, I think is just like, like age is not a barrier. Um, and I think like throughout school, there's almost like this system and structure as to when you can do certain things. Like first you go to high school, then you go to university, and then somehow, somehow you'll just kind of end up with a job. Um, and I see this a lot because I'm in, I'm in my last year of high school. So talk to a lot of just like my friends and a lot of them are thinking about where they want to apply to university. And it almost feels like a life and death situation where they need to know exactly where they want to go and it like they can't change that decision and it just needs to be perfect. But I don't think that's the reality. Like that's just not how the world works. Um, I think you will evolve. Like your passion doesn't stay the same. Your passion changes over time as you get exposure to new things and you figure out not only what you like, but most importantly, what you don't like. 
And so for me, that's been a huge takeaway is like you don't need to necessarily let your age be a constraint in when you can find your passion or, you know, when you can start working in my case on these projects and building companies, you can really do that at any time. Um, And so that like really shifted my mindset because I stopped kind of having these internal constraints and it became more of like, okay, I can actually do this. Now let's just figure out how to do it. Let's hustle. Let's like try to activate things for ourselves so that we can do these things. Um, Yeah, like I'd say the biggest takeaway has definitely been that mindset for me. Stresses the fact that there is this new current in way of thinking or outlook on life, especially when it comes to Gen Z or the younger members of the society. I'm really interested to hear your take on it because from my perspective and what has been you know shown in the studies that we might get the message from baby boomers that you've got to have your whole game plan laid out just as you said finish university get a degree and then find a job for yourself and that's the point at the end of the story but now with new members of the generation you want to be your own boss and collaborate with others and not really stick to this specific plan it could stem from the fact that baby boomers grew up during unsure times after the two world wars wars and then you got the cold war they seek security but we have this generational divide in terms of way of thinking and outlook on life i think it's like it's probably like just Like, I think it's an age thing Um, because I think if you talk to most adults, I wouldn't say everyone, but I'd say most adults, like, they would probably value, like, security, um, like, safety over, like, a lot of ambiguity and just, like, not being certain of things. Um, And so I do think that's, like, the mindset. And, you know, in some cases, like, it might make sense because, you know, people have family they have a house they have things that they need to sustain so I don't necessarily have like a a strict opinion on things like that but I do think it's more of like a it's definitely an age thing when you're younger you almost are more receptive to change and you're more receptive to being open to these different like just ambiguity in general but I don't think it's everyone I also think that like over time that can change so for me like I just try to be as receptive to change and ambiguity like I want to go where ambiguity is versus like trying to be in a very fixed space where I can't you know where I can't really change the things I'm working on or the things I'm interested in so I think that it's more of like a age divide that comes into play there um in terms of why people value what they do. It's been really great to to hear your viewpoint in it and um, how that correlates with age. Of course, it also boils down to personality traits and also mindset because you said that you recently yeah. developed the need to embrace ambiguity and more go with the flow and not stick to a whole plan, which I think is beneficial and provides a good message that you don't have to have it perfect because perfect is unattainable. That would mean that you are 100% done and out of the whole game. Uh, But you need to still change and adapt. And there are just a lot of self-love tips floating around the internet. But 
thinking that you are already not talking about intrinsic value don't get me wrong but thinking that you are already whole whole package and no need to change anything is just destructive for yourself and does not promote your growth so just as you said be upfront with yourself and embrace that things have to change and will change whether you want it or not i don't think going with the flow means like you just don't care about anything you're doing and you just like let the world do things for you I think like you still have to be like an activator you still have to make things happen for yourself because no one in the world is gonna do anything for you and that's like another huge thing I realize is like you could be working on things you could be doing whatever but reality is it's like most people in the world probably don't care um, or like they're not gonna do things for you like at the end of the day you have to do it for yourself So I don't think like going with the flow means that you just kind of let the world happen. I do think you need to have like certain values and understand like what you value, what you enjoy, like the type of person you want to be and the things you want to be working on, but allow for there to be room for flexibility. Like if things go totally like the other way, like that's okay. As long as that matches up with your values, like keep doing it. Um, And that's like a kind of the mindset that I've been in in terms of just like the outlook of life and just how I approach things like I still plan things but it's not like if this doesn't work out then like by this time then like everything is messed up yes I get it and I think it's been really great that you made a clarification it can be compared to the gel soul um, interchange we learn in biology or chemistry because it's just the structure of the molecules or structure of the state that changes but the material remains the same your core values your goals and ambitions but you are adapting to to certain factors and i think where that's where you you have this uh, mindset nailed down yeah uh, actually i like that analogy <laughs> a question that is brought up on every episode and virtually or in our minds we've had a plenty of guests attending the drop the stem dinner um so if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past who would you choose and why nikola tesla i think yeah like i think his research obviously is very revolutionary in terms of everything he's contributed to electricity So I think that'd be a very interesting kind of conversation, just hearing his mindset, like hearing like his approaches to things Um, and just like hearing about him as a person. I think I'd just be very curious to learn more. You know, just theoretically, you could discuss the future of energy storage with him and what's his viewpoint uh, on that topic. Um, But I think he would be blown away by the amount of progress that has been made in that field. Yeah, I think that's that's also very crazy is just like the, yeah, like the progress, but also the way things have kind of moved. Because I do think, I think it's very interesting because I think people in history, one thing I've seen, because I was learning about quantum theory, and it's like a lot of it is like built on people previously. Like we had Mark Max Planck, and then uh, like he took like this idea of quanticized energy and then Einstein took it and applied it to light energy and created photons. And then um, then we had like Bohr who applied this to like electrons and atoms. I think a lot of it is like built on top of each other. And so I also think that is a very interesting kind of aspect of just like scientific discovery that evolves over time is how like this simple concept that you can invent 
like leads to something so much more bigger. You can see the whole development of scientific advancement by bits by bits, but it's an ongoing process. When you have reactive oxygen species in the cells and when they give up electrons, it's like a chain of reaction that's happening over time. And um, it's like they pass on that little energy bits to each other by providing these amazing scientific advancements. We're gonna yeah. go with a game, the this or that game. So are you ready? Sure. <laughs> All right. So the first one is apple pie or pumpkin pie? That's a hard one. I think, I think probably pumpkin pie. I just like, I really like anything pumpkin themed. So that's like my reason for why. The second one is city or countryside? Hmm. I think I, I probably say city. I do like the aspect of like living on countryside. I think it's just like, you know, it's obviously a lot more peaceful, I think. But I like, I don't know, I like living in a city. I think you just have access to a lot more things and like people. Um, and I, I guess I like that. Yeah. There's more boom and buzzing in the city, more happening at once. Well, countryside, everything is a slow motion, right? Yeah. And the next one is learn a new skill or a new dish? Probably learn a new skill. I've definitely not super good at cooking, but I'm trying to, to get better. So I think maybe I should pick the other option just so I can get better at cooking. But I'd say like probably learn a new skill. Okay, if you could attain any skill, uh, what would you choose just as a side question? I guess this is EQ. Um, like maybe it's EQ or maybe it's just something else. But I think just being able to like uh, understand people really well. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know what kind of skill that would be. But I just think that would be very revolutionary if you could just like understand people really well. In correlation with emotional intelligence, which as you said, like EQ. Yeah. For that ability, there's actually an awesome YouTube interview with a woman who was working for, I believe, FBI. And she was the one who, you know, was responsible for deciding whether that person was guilty of committing the crime or not. Mm -hmm. And she had to develop very fine skills to read people. That is a skill, just as you said, you can learn it. It's not like you are born with this detective sense. Of course, you can have a predisposition, but it's still a technique that she's expanded on. And that conversation was actually very interesting to, to hear her viewpoints on it. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I'll follow up with you about that. Absolutely. I, I will send you the link. Yeah. I will get you to these. <laughs> and the next one is have a plan or be spontaneous. And when I thought about it, you know, I didn't know how this conversation is going to go, but I'll let you answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could say both, I would really like to say both. But I do think I lean definitely towards being more of a planner than like being spontaneous um which I know seems kind of counterintuitive but I do think like for like for me it's having a little bit of both and I do think you can have like an integration similar to like what I talked about earlier right now it would probably be like I think being spontaneous I think that could just be like an interesting like mindset to have and then the last one is twister like the game or activity so activity can be is that a game like Pictionary? Pictionary, yes. 
Uh, I like I like Pictionary. Yeah, I think it's just like it's a good game. So probably Pictionary. The the closing question that really encapsulates the message of this podcast and infusing the humane aspect with the wonders of science is actually what does science mean to you? I think science is the ability to like take an initial like idea or hypothesis and just like go down a rabbit hole to understand it really deeply and like break it down um, and then use kind of the root cause of that breakdown to you know solve that problem or or solve that hypothesis or validate that hypothesis so I think that process um, to me is like what science is kind of about It's a very cheesy sentence, but it's more about the journey than the destination itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth, for you know sharing your perspectives on a variety of topics and providing inspirational messages to the listeners. So. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and for coming on this podcast episode. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always. Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.